Japan is likely to surprise you, especially in the autumn. A newcomer is most struck by everything that's modern and Western and zany, but just turn a corner, as you know, and suddenly you're in somewhere ancient and mysterious and full of spirits. Coming up, Pico Iyer tells us why he thinks fall is the ideal season to get to know the melancholy heart of Japan. Among the Nordic countries, Sweden has a distinctive personality. Big sister Sweden, she is very concerned about that everybody should be treated equal, everything should be fair. Guides from Stockholm and Uppsala tell us how to make a trip to Sweden affordable any time of year. And travel writer Robert Reed recommends immersing yourself into your next destination before you even buy the plane ticket. One of the best things about getting excited about a trip is trying to understand the conversation that's already in place. This is what a travel writer does. Learn how to travel like a pro in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Author Pico Iyer explains why he thinks autumn is the ideal season to get to know Japan. And don't fear the high cost of traveling to Scandinavia. Guides from Sweden share tips on how the average Swede gets by. That's all a little later in the hour ahead on today's Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-7425. Travel writer Robert Reed wants you to know how to travel like the travel pros do. It starts with deciding where you'll go next. Robert, why not just follow what's on sale? (laughs) Well, so often you see stories and travel coverage and just talking about where you can go because it's $50 off or something like that. You know, I think that ultimately it's about following yourself. I mean, the the ultimate person that knows where you want to go and what you want to do is yourself. And so don't let a deal change what you're going to do. Some people only have one trip a year, you know, if if that. If somebody says you can get a cheap flight to Portugal and your travel dreams are taking you to Scotland, Scotland's a better value even if it costs more. It can be, yeah. I mean, if it's a really good deal, Portugal, I might take it. But <laughs> I take it, right. But remember where your travel dreams are taking you. That's that's where the best values probably are. Also, you say, be a guidebook troll. What do you mean by that? <laughs> guidebook trolls. You know, I think that I'm inside it because I've been a guidebook author. But guidebooks um, are still filled with so many little secrets just kind of embedded in them. They're very well-researched. And a lot of people kind of lose sight of that in this digital era be a guidebook troll because you can find the thing that connects with you. You know, like I talk about traveling like a travel writer. A travel writer has to dip their head under the surface in all kinds of different places. And when they're creating a story or a video, something more than just even a guidebook, what they often will do is find a quest and they'll make their trip a quest. Hmm. And I think that if people find something that they connect with and make it a quest out of it, so the trip isn't just to see the Mona Lisa but to see what happens when you go and do something in Paris that you're already passionate about. And often the tools for that are just embedded throughout guidebooks because they have so many things. I think you said it yourself. It's like a $15 investment for, you know, like $10,000 of secrets. Uh, And uh, I'm Hmm. a big fan of guidebooks. Oh, a lot of people are very pennywise and pound foolish when it comes to guidebooks. Uh, And uh, if your guidebook's any good, I always say it, it pays for itself on the shuttle in from the airport. Of course, you and I make money selling guidebooks, so we have our (laughs) sales pitch down pretty well. But guidebooks are tools, and um, I think when they're used smartly, they can be very helpful. I like the way you make a map when you're planning your trip. You actually do a uh, kind of a crude hand-drawn map. Tell us what the thinking is behind that. 
I will look at a guidebook, and one of the first things I do is I will look at transportation. If I'm landing in a set place, I'm going to Columbia for the first time, is there a unique train? Is there a boat canal? I'll look up like transportation options and see where I can go, and I start mapping things out. Then, you know, if I'm looking at a guidebook, for example, what I do is I just read like the first paragraph of each section of a chapter and then decide the region I'm interested, and then start mapping it out. It becomes real. I'm dorky that way. I love cartography. I know what you mean. But it helps visualize it. Because recently I've been in Cuba and Ethiopia and Guatemala for my first time, and I didn't know where the capital city was in any of those countries. I mean, if I was to draw a map, it was a little bit uh, confusing and overwhelming. So I had to get my lay of the land straight, And then gradually I was able to put this trip together, this itinerary together, but I needed to visualize it with the help of that map. Another thing you recommend is make reading and Netflix your friend as your departure date approaches. I think that, you know, one of the best things about getting excited about a trip is trying to understand the conversation that's already in place. This is what a travel writer does. You look at a movie that's either a documentary about the place or a film that's shot there just to get in the culture of what's being said about it. I always read at least one book. It could be a great novel that's written about it or by someone from there or some historical book or a travel narrative book of some kind. But I always say, okay, where's the movie? (laughs) Where's the book? And at least get one of each wherever you go so that you just start to get into the conversation that's already about that and use your trip as a way of almost expanding that conversation. And do it before your trip, not after your trip. Too many times I've got turned on to something and then I I learn more about it once I get home. And it just saddens me because had I known more about it, I would have enjoyed my experience while there a lot more. You know, part of it is that, you know, I think a guidebook's life, 75, 80% of it is before the trip, really. And it's trying to lay out that kind of literal map or just kind of a mental map of what the possibilities are. You go and see what happens. If you find something out that you didn't know, great. You're doing a great job traveling. Or you're finding something that you can do on the ground that you wouldn't have known because of your pre-research. I think it's a a fun way of building anticipation of it and getting a little beyond the normal travel itineraries that people do. You know, you mentioned Havana in Cuba. You know, I found out the first baseball team was three hours east of Havana from a guidebook. And when I was there, I hired one of those kind of 57 Chevys, went out Mm. there and saw a baseball game, you know. And so I wouldn't have known that. I wouldn't have thought about it. And, you know, think of the trouble people go to have two days in in Havana or two days in St. Petersburg or a quick stop in Iceland and how much they can gain by discovering these wonderful ways to connect with the culture or the natural wonders before they get there so they can plan on it and hop in that old 57 Chevy and (laughs) make a grand approach to the baseball diamond in Cuba. (laughs) You also talk about how to get advice you really want. This is important. A lot of times you ask somebody over there and they tell you what they think you want but they don't know what you want. Can you explain what you're talking about there? Well, sometimes people will have a quick answer for you. Where to eat, you ask someone in Dallas, and they tell you to go to some chain to Applebee's or something. They're sitting on the truth. They're sitting on something that's really unique about the place, but it doesn't immediately come to mind. And so part of the art is being able to to press, to ask questions you don't think you even want to know the answer to, uh, things you already know the answer to, because it unlocks something surprising. It's like sometimes I'll ask people, well, when you were growing up here, where did you all go get drunk when you were 17? You know, where's the like the lookout tower that everyone went? Because it leads to some kind of story, not that I want to get drunk at the, <laughs> at the well. water tower. 
But something surprising like that can lead to some interesting, unexpected insight. They have it. You know, everyone you talk to either knows the person who knows it or they know it, but they don't immediately. And the art, particularly if it's a travel writer, is figuring that out as quickly as possible. Robert Reed is a travel writer based in Vietnam who previously worked on a number of Lonely Planet guidebooks. You'll sometimes find his articles in National Geographic and the New York Times travel section. He posts frequently about his latest travels on Twitter, at Robert Reed, spelled R-E-I-D. Alice has given us a ring from Carlsbad in California. Alice, thanks for calling. Hi, Rick. How are you doing? Doing great. Any thoughts on how to travel smarter? I love to plan. It's the best part of the whole trip is the planning. I can spend a year planning a trip for two or three weeks. But we love to go to Italy, and I always loved uh, Fred Plotkin's books because he gave you all the restaurants and bakeries and all the places to go and see. And your guest just mentioned something about asking someone their best uh, place to go drink when they were young. (laughs) And it reminded me of looking for one of Fred's restaurants, and it was in Genoa up at the top of a hill. And we thought we were on the right road, but we weren't sure. We asked a young couple that was heading up the hill, and they said, oh, yeah, just follow us. And we followed them up this winding road past the cows on the road. And, oh, we thought we'd never get there. They were taking us on a wild goose chase. But they pulled off and they pointed to the other side of the road. They were going to the lover's makeout spot. But across the street was the restaurant that we were trying to find. And we were the only one there. But it was the most fabulous meal we had. Oh, that's great. What a good story. And, you know, I, know. I, I love Fred Plotkin, too. And uh, there's a good example. Fred is a pleasure activist. That's what he calls himself. Oh, and uh, and he's really passionate about Italian cuisine. And Well, so am I. And well, as passionate I like. as I am about Italian history or, or art or architecture, he is about food. And, uh, you know, you can come at the culture from all different angles. If you want to come at the culture from a food angle, uh, in the case of Italy, you'd, you'd want a book by Fred Plotkin. And, and there would be books like that for foodies or music aficionados or car enthusiasts or people who love Billy Joel. You know, you can do your research and have a, a trip that fits your travel dreams more more snugly. Alice, but thanks for your... my Bible for traveling in Italy. That's great. Thanks for your call, Alice. All right. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with uh, travel writer and guidebook researcher Robert Reed. And, Robert, uh, you mentioned that a lot of people are thinking guidebooks are sort of uh, becoming out of date, and it's almost fashionable to bash guidebooks. You made a pretty good case that guidebooks are still practical tools. I like to think they're practical tools, and one thing I find is, uh, you mentioned uh, the life of the guidebook starts well before your trip. When you read your guidebook in advance, you head off pitfalls. If you're going to Iran, you've, you've got to know how to handle the boycott and what's it like in a, in a land where you can't use your credit card. Uh, in the case of Iceland, they don't even use cash. You don't want to change money because you use your credit card everywhere. Uh, you and I have both been in Cuba lately, and you got to know if you're going to use the local currency or the convertible currency. You wouldn't know about that unless you had a guidebook to read in advance. Make a case for guidebooks here to wrap up this conversation. Well, guidebooks is your stepping stone into this place that you don't know, and they've been there many times, and you should follow them because they can lead you all kinds of places left and right by people who care and are very passionate about it. It's very difficult to make a guidebook. And so to do that means you really love the place. And it it goes in so many different directions that I do believe, particularly for some of the more difficult destinations, as you mentioned, that there's got to be a long life for this. 
it is anything you want it to be. It's not that prescriptive, really, because it covers so much. You find what connects with you in it. And then when you're there, you can open your eyes and explore. Just go out on the sidewalks on your own, having prepared yourself for the possibility possibility that you're talking about is greater than ever. I mean, there's a lot of fear in our society and a lot of people are, they have anxiety about this and concerns about that. But when you travel, you realize this world is filled with joy and love and beautiful people that you can meet. And it's in a way, it's a golden age of travel. It really is the golden age of travel. Whenever has there been a time when it's easier to go farther, to go to places that you couldn't have even imagine going 20 years ago, there's new groups of people traveling for their first time and it's exciting. You know, the power that these people have meeting each other in new places or meeting locals in different places. And a guidebook really is these kind of like little stepping stones. And as Bob Dylan says, leave those stepping stones behind. Something calls for you, he sings. And, and a guidebook are those stepping stones into this new world. You can find your personal connection to a place if it's a type of travel or a type of destination or art or a type of food. Mm. And I still don't know another way that prepares you better and the, the good old guidebook. All right. Thank you very much, Robert Reed. And um, I don't like to say safe travels. I like to say bon voyage. Bon voyage, yes, I'll take that. Those faraway places Where the strange-sounding names Are calling, calling me Robert Reed's website is readontravel.com. Pico Iyer explains why autumn is his favorite season to be in Japan, next on Travel with Rick Steves. Pico Iyer left a lucrative office job in Manhattan for a Zen monastery on a back street of Kyoto more than 30 years ago. Since then, he's written two novels, ten works of nonfiction, and even the liner notes on four Leonard Cohen albums. His latest book, Autumn Light, gives us a rarely seen slice of daily life in Japan, where he lives in an apartment with his Japanese wife in a quiet suburb of Nara. Pico, welcome back. Thank you, Rick. You know, in your book, you have a great quote that contrasts the marketing imagery of Japan with the reality. You write, Cherry blossoms, pink and frothy as schoolgirls' giggles, are the face the country likes to present to the world, all pink and white eroticism but it's the reddening of the maple leaves under a blaze of ceramic blue skies that is the place's secret heart. That is such beautiful writing. Can you just develop a little bit of that? Because I got to admit, cherry blossoms is how I think of Japan. Well, they often say around Kyoto, near which I live, that life is a joyful participation in a world of sorrows. In other words, it's exactly the fact that things don't last that makes us cherish their beauty and, and seize the moment. And cherry blossoms are appreciated in Japan because they flare for just five, ten days and then they're gone. But I think autumn is like a deep journey into that mixture of wistfulness and buoyancy, of, of radiance and melancholy. And as you may know, in Japan, there's one word that's used for the self that exists in private behind closed doors and another completely different word for the self that's out in public. And so I think the cherry blossoms are a beautiful surface that Japan can put on every poster yeah. and postcard and is bewitching. But if you really open a door and go into a Japanese heart and life, I think what you'll find is this 
beautiful melancholy and this keen, exquisite appreciation of the fragility of things and the beauty of them precisely because they don't last. So that's why I feel that the late November, which is when the autumn really flowers in Japan, mm. is its secret heart. Yeah, you wrote that it was in autumn that I first got upended by Japan, and I realized that not to live here would be to commit myself to a, a kind of exile for life. So you chose to live there. Is that what you hoped for? Everything I imagined and much more. It's funny, I was living in this quite exciting, fast-paced life in New York City, and I was just flying back to New York City from Hong Kong, and I had a an unwanted layover at Narita Airport near Tokyo. And since I didn't have anything else to do while I was waiting for my flight, I just took a free shuttle bus into the town of Narita and walked around. And it mm. was a late October day, so brilliant mm. blue skies, but that first pang of coming cold mm. and dark. And two hours walking around the town of Narita so moved me and felt so familiar that by the time I boarded my plane, I decided I'm going to come and live in Japan. If I don't, something will always be unresolved within me. And it took me three years to extricate myself from my job working for Time magazine, but finally I did. And it's one thing I've never regretted. I've been there, as you know, 32 years, and I would gladly spend really every day of my life in Japan now. Wow, a free shuttle bus with a, during a layover where you just were too restless to sit there and just hang out at the airport, and it changed your life. Yes, and, and for anyone listening to the show who is in Narita Airport, please go into that town. Uh, what I didn't realize at the time is that the central temple in Narita, 20 minutes from the airport, is a thousand years old. It's one of the great pilgrimage spots in Japan. People sometimes walk 46 miles from central Tokyo to pay homage to it. Ah. And there it is near all the airport hotels. And I, in some ways, that's the, the essence of Japan. Well, I think when you first go to Japan, often a newcomer is most struck by everything that's modern and Western mm -hmm. and zany. But just turn a corner, as you know, mm. and suddenly you're in somewhere ancient mm. and mysterious and full of spirits, and even in the town of Narita. This book, Autumn Light, really is about death and it's about aging. What's going on in your family that has you looking at things through this lens? Well, this book begins with the death of my 91-year-old father-in-law, and then my wife had to move her 86-year-old mother, whom her father had been looking after, into a nursing home. So the same kind of story you would hear in the U.S. or England mm -hmm. or anywhere. But I think in Japan, death is really a fact of life, the ultimate fact of life. And so as soon as her father died, um, my wife had to buy a very expensive Buddhist name to protect him in the afterworld. And then she had to buy an even more expensive gravestone, which at certain times in the year is encircled with lanterns so that her father can come back, look in on his much-missed loved ones for three days, and then make his way back to his new home in the heavens. And I think there's a sense in Japan that the dead aren't really gone. It's almost as if they've just moved to another room. Mm. So my wife still, on a day off, makes this two-hour trip each way to what in Japan is regarded as a city of tomorrow. In other words, a graveyard. And she goes and talks to her late father and her long-departed grandmother about all the family news. And, of course, people do that everywhere. But I think in, in Japan there's a much greater sense of closeness to the dead. Pico Iyer is the author of a dozen books, often with a cross-cultural theme. Among his latest is Autumn Light, in which he takes us three train transfers from Kyoto into the small town where he lives half the year. He's also released a collection of observations and provocations that he calls A Beginner's Guide to Japan. 
Pico describes his friendship with the Dalai Lama in an extra to today's show. You can hear that and Pico's earlier Travel with Rick Steves interviews at ricksteves.com radio. Now, as Christians, people go to heaven or they go to hell. At least that's the, the way it's looked at. In your wife's outlook, is everybody just in the city of tomorrow or is there a slum of tomorrow in a, in a nice, <laughs> uh, nice modern city of tomorrow? It's this such a good question. I wish you were here answering it. But no, I think I, exactly as you said, I think everybody is in the city of tomorrow. The one difference is if somebody suddenly loses her life, as happened in the tsunami, 18,500 people suddenly swept away mm-hmm. uh, in 2011, they're sometimes seen as hungry ghosts. In other words, they haven't had time to prepare themselves for the city of tomorrow. So the spirits are still all around oh. us and something uncompleted. And they even have exorcism ceremonies to, to try to deal with this situation where the sort of undead are all, all around us. But I think, you know, again, one, way, one reason I stress all this is that when I first arrived in Japan... I was fascinated by the latest Sony gizmos and the Toyota cars and the toilets that talk to you, all all that kind of thing. But the longer I've been there, the more I see how it's really a place saturated with spirits. It's an ancient, primal, pantheistic place. And I think Mm -hmm. that's what makes it so fascinating for me. Wow, ancient, primal, and pantheistic. And that ties in with the fact that uh, we're all dealing with our mortality. And Japan is a... I believe Japan is an aging society, just like America is an aging society. So do you think these Japanese rituals and traditions make aging and dying in Japan more graceful, more dignified, less scary than it is in the United States? I think it gives people a container. As you know, Japan is a society of rituals. And what that means is that when somebody dies, everybody knows exactly what they have to do for the next 48 hours and then a week later and seven weeks later and a year later. And I think when you or I Mm. in the United States suddenly lose a loved one, we have all this confusion and Mm -hmm. anger and sorrow and we don't know what to do with it, where to get it out. And I think in Japan, there's just a sense, these are your marks, this is what you do, this is the same thing people have been doing for hundreds of years, and it doesn't take away the sorrow or the anger, but it at least gives you a guide, tells you what to do in those initial, most fragile moments, and reminds you that you're, this is just part of a cycle. It's like the coming of the autumn, and, and that autumn is the first step towards spring, and it's not necessarily something to mourn. Um, it's, it's just a process, like the trees growing bare, and then they'll gather leaves again soon. So to what degree is Autumn Light, the book that you've written in your mind, an opportunity to look at um, aging and death in a different light or just a guidebook or a memoir about Japan? No, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, I'm getting older. My mother is 88 years old now. Mm-hmm. And inevitably, I'm, I'm thinking about what to do with all that. I remember Henry David Thoreau, one of my heroes, has uh, said that if death is seen as a law rather than an accident, it changes the way you think of everything. Mm-hmm. If you accept that it's inevitable then actually you cherish all the preceding moments much more. So yes, this book, Autumn Light, is a way to address all that and also to think about different ways of dealing with life. For example, there's a phenomenon that's got a lot of press recently whereby if an aging couple in Japan don't have a daughter to look in on them or if she's moved to the United States with her American husband, they'll literally hire an actress to come and knock on their door every Sunday and say, hello, mom, hello, dad, (laughs) I've missed you a lot. Let's have a nice Sunday afternoon together. And I think to us that often sounds very strange. 
But to a Japanese person, they're suspending their disbelief in order、mm. to, to fill a hole in their heart. And it's actually a very practical solution to a very real problem. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Pico Iyer, and he's the author of a dozen books, and his TED Talks have been viewed by millions. You'll often see his articles in the New York Times. Lately, Pico's written two books about Japan, where he lives part of the year. One book is called A Beginner's Guide to Japan, and the book we're talking about now is called Autumn Light A Season of Fire and Farewells. His website is picoiyerjourneys.com. P I C O I Y E R Journeys.com. So, Pico, when we near death, I think we end up thinking more about God and what happens next. How is Japan different than our culture in the United States in that regard? I think it's very similar. And I think that's one of the many universal things. And in this book, in some ways, I was concentrating not on the many ways Japan is different, but the many ways that. It's the same story you would find anywhere, even though it plays out in a different language. So、mm-hmm. I remember when I met my wife, and she was 31, and the last thing she wanted to do was to go to a graveyard or to think about death or to make、uh, food every morning and put it out on the household altar、right. for her grandmother, which now she does do.、Um, so, as you say, we all start going back to our roots as, as、mm-hmm. we get older. But I think one of the interesting things about the religions in Japan is Shinto, which is really a kind of animism. Doesn't have any texts, it doesn't have any theories. It's really about a series of rites and, and rituals to perform. And Buddhism in Japan also is much less about philosophy and much more about、uh, practical action. I remember once I was traveling in Morocco and I talked to my Japanese wife on the phone and I said, Oh, I've got a kind of spooky feeling. And she said, Oh, just put some salt in your pocket. And I said, Wait, well, how am I going to get salt? She said,、oh, Order something from room service. They'll bring some salt, put it in your pocket. And I don't know if it did any good, but it surely did no harm. And she instantly had this very practical response to an unsettled feeling inside me. And I wouldn't have known what to do without、mm-hmm. that advice. So Japan is it's almost giving you pointers for dealing with the unknowable. It is the unknowable. And, and from a cerebral、um, religious point of view, as a Christian, I want to read and I want to see some. Holy scriptures that explain it to me,、uh, but maybe a different outlook would be just do this ritual and, and let it be. It's interesting, you wrote that one generation ago, your mother in law considered the Japanese emperor was God on earth, directly descended from the sun goddess. Talk about a generation gap,、uh, but Hiroko, your wife, still has that, that ancient indigenous religion in her, it sounds like. Exactly, which is essentially Shinto. So they, they have what they call Kami Sama, which are deities who inhabit every blade of grass, every speck of dust, every, every flower. And from the Japanese point of view, they walk through this, this realm of deities wherever they go. Marie Kondo, the decluttering guru, is now very popular in, in、uh-huh. this side of the world. But I think what she's offering is really Shinto. She famously says, When you have a dress, ask your dress if it's sparking joy. And if it isn't, <laughs> throw it away.、Oh. When you have a teddy bear you want to, to get rid of, cover its eyes before you get rid of it. And when I listen to her say those kind of things, I think, well, that's exactly Shinto. That's what all my Japanese friends and neighbors take as, as natural that there are, there are spirits inhabiting every creature, even the ones that we in the West think of as inanimate. And so they have Shinto to, to help them with the equivalent of baptisms and, and weddings and. Happy celebrations, and they have Buddhism that helps them deal with death. And the, the Buddhist priest will come to the house and do certain chants to make the departed spirit calm. And so, I think over 1400 years, they fashioned this 
very sensible way of medicine for mm -hmm. all the things that life uh, can can It's like a pharmacy. Us. They can get whatever medicine they want religiously because they're <laughs> I, it, it was frustrating to me with my I, I had a Japanese girlfriend once and it just it felt like she would wear the cloak of any religion just effortlessly. You know, in a Christian culture you don't you don't really do that, but as travelers we encounter different religions that sometimes are hard to fathom, but you do need to respect them. And uh, it enriches your travels when you look at it, not judgmentally, but you become a kind of a cultural chameleon and you, you run with it. Exactly. I think that precisely that's, that's why one travels, I think, to learn about mm -hmm. the different ways that other cultures approach death and suffering and old age yeah. and all these really difficult things. Um, whenever I go to Japan, I, I, my first day there, I make a trip to the local shrine to thank the local gods for protecting my family. And again, I don't know if it does any good, but I think, as you were saying, I'm in Japan. I should honor the Japanese customs and deities. Yeah, you know, I, I think I'm pretty good at that. I try to be good at that because life just goes better on the road when, you, when you're in a positive mood about the Buddhists in Sri Lanka or, or the Muslims in Morocco or the Catholics in Poland. I, I just think that's a kind of an ethic of travel. When I go to Japan, a big part of visiting Japan is, is dropping in on Shinto temples. What's just a practical tip to appreciate a Shinto temple, Pico? Well, they're open 24 hours a day. There, there are no gates and other than those big orange Tory gates. The Buddhist temples often are open from 9 to 5, the way a, a church might be in the West. Mm. But the Shinto shrine is, is everywhere, and it's usually in the middle of trees. And yes, I recommend going there at dusk, going there in the early morning. And you don't have to understand it. Mm -hmm. You just have to feel that a lot of people are bringing a lot of respect and attention uh, to it. And I loved what you said about travel, because I think... We travel to learn from other cultures and to mm -hmm. see what's different and how that difference can expand us rather than being upset by the fact that they do things differently than we do. Pico Iyer, to talk to you inspires me to travel and travel with an open heart and a willingness to, to get out of what I think is the norm and, and just to celebrate that opportunity. And it makes me sad for people that don't take the opportunity to travel who have the opportunity. And it makes me really happy for people that do take the initiative to learn from the rest of the world. Your book, Autumn Light, is a thoughtful look at our mortality and aging and so on. Let's just close it uh, thinking about your book and, and the lessons you're trying to share in your book. You've got a loved one who's dying and you could take him on one trip to Japan. What experience would you share with them to make them more comfortable with what lies ahead? I would go to the sacred mountain known as Koyasan outside Osaka, which you ascend by a cable car, and at the top there's nothing but 135 Buddhist temples, many groves of 800-year-old trees, and 250,000 graves. It's a very solemn, dignified place. You stay in a temple, you eat in delicious temple vegetarian food, you can see fire ceremonies every morning, and I'd say it's the most powerful place I've been to in Japan, and it just gives you a sense of sacredness, which means that when you take the cable car down two days later, you feel like a different person, something solid inside you that maybe there wasn't there before. Mm. What is the name of that place again? Koyasan, K-O-Y-A-S-A-N. And 52 of the temples really serve as guest houses. They all open their doors to visitors, and it's very easy. There's a tourist information center there, and they will oh. quickly make a reservation for you to stay at any of these temples. They're more or less the same, but each has its own little garden and rites. And you just walk along this narrow street in the city of temples, 
lit by lanterns after dark, and uh, you're in another world. You're really in mm-hmm. the ninth century, which is when this city ah. was or this mountain was created. It sounds wonderful, Koyasan. Pico Iyer, thank you for exploring all the thoughts that come to you through your travels and then sharing a lot of them in your new book, Autumn Light, Season of Fire and Farewells. Thank you, Rick. Pico posts some of his latest articles on his website. That's picoirejourneys.com. Guides from Sweden, take your calls next at 877-333-RICK on Travel with Rick Steves. With a little planning, you can be smart in how you spend your time and your money when you visit notoriously expensive Scandinavia. Tour guides from Sweden join us now on Travel with Rick Steves with insider advice for a Swedish getaway and to fill us in on how the Swedes rank high on so many satisfaction rankings for quality of life. Joining us is American-born Laurel James. She eventually married her high school sweetheart, who is a Swedish exchange student, and they live in Uppsala. Ossa Danielsson lives in the capital city, Stockholm, where she's also an accomplished flamenco enthusiast and dancer. Ossa, Laurel, thanks for being here. Thanks. Thank you. When we think about Scandinavia, of course, it's notorious for being expensive. Uh, You both are working and living in in Sweden. How do the different countries relate to each other? Denmark, Norway, Sweden. Uh, Which is more expensive? Clearly, Norway is more expensive. Hmm. And uh, Norwegians go over the border to Sweden to shop at the grocery stores and to shop alcohol in the liquor store. So why would Norway be more expensive? Because of oil. They have all that oil. All that oil, which has pushed up the prices. Really? So it's a huge difference, actually. If I was Swedish, I'd be a little bit jealous of the Norwegians because they just it's just the luck of the natural draw. They got this North Sea oil. <laughs> uh, we're doing fine anyway. You're doing pretty well. <laughs> That's good. And Laurel, if you think about Denmark compared to Sweden, how, how is the cost Yeah, I think... I can say the same thing about Swedes go to Denmark to buy alcohol. So the Norwegians go to Sweden and the Swedes go to Denmark. (laughs) Yeah. So if you want an affordable beer, you better have it in Copenhagen. Oh, yeah. What is it? Helsingor and Helsingborg, the two towns right across? Yeah. Helsingborg is Sweden. Helsingor is Denmark. I was in Helsingor, I remember, as a student, and it was filled with Swedes coming over just to drink. Yes. I remember being in a bar in Helsingor. And it was just like an old Wild West movie. The, <laughs> the bartenders in the, in the bar had to throw the Swedes out the door because yeah. they were being so rowdy because they didn't know how to handle their beer and it was so cheap. Exactly. Well, I think things are getting a little better, but uh, those were the reputations in the day. Is that all driven days. by tax policies where the alcohol is more expensive? Yeah, I would say so. Denmark is more relaxed when it comes to alcohol policies and, and mm-hmm. many other things too. But uh, you can go to any grocery store in Denmark and get any type of liquor. Whereas in Sweden and Norway, you have to go to the one monopoly, the national store. Same thing in uh, Iceland also. Exactly. I often wonder, it must be very expensive for people who live there. But maybe not. how, How do you feel about the cost of living when you're in Sweden? Don't feel it at all. For many reasons. I mean, a middle class Swedish family... Very often, uh, they have a summer house. They go abroad on vacation once a year, usually to Thailand or to, you know, they go far away. And uh, they live a pretty comfortable life. And they can afford that. Is that a two-income family or a one-income family? Always two-income family. So everybody's working. Yes. Okay. And uh, how much vacation do most people receive? Minimum five. 
weeks. Minimum five weeks. weeks. Okay. Yes. And you don't need a car. And that's a huge difference. Here, yes. you have to have two cars for a family. There, most people, if they have a car, they have one okay. mm-hmm, for the family. So yeah. you're a typical worker in Sweden, and you can take your big vacation. You get five weeks of paid vacation. Mm-hmm. You can travel to Thailand. Uh, you don't need a car. Uh, you can afford to live nicely, but you also, you probably don't have the stress of health care expenses. Exactly. We don't, we don't have to think about health care. It's all included. And we don't have to save money for our children's education. Education is free. University is free. You will have money from the government while you're studying. So you don't even have to pay for your... You have pocket money. Yeah, you have more than pocket money. You're ah. independent. You're completely independent when so, you go to uni- university. But, but you have national health care. What, what is the thinking? Are there people that think it's not adequate? Or what is the general... No, pop- no, pop- no, no, no. So, <laughs> it's, it's, just, it's, I only hear good yeah. things. Yeah. Yes. Laurel, really? you're, you're, you're an American yes. who now lives in mm-hmm. Sweden. Well, so, what's your take on that? Because you, you're part of the Swedish system now. Yeah. As an American woman, this might be kind of off topic, but I feel like because you said you don't think it's expensive in Sweden, but I used to get, you know, my nails done and my hair dyed and stuff like that in there. I can't do that kind of thing. I feel like that is, you know, three times as much. Of course. Yeah. So I do feel like, oh my gosh, some things are really (laughs) expensive. But on the other hand, you're right. Everyone we know, no matter what kind of job they have, they're taking amazing vacations. They're taking their kids Hmm. to Greece for the week off in February. And, you know, I mean, they're People are living a good life. So Scandinavia has organized their society a different way. Mm -hmm. We can't really say right or wrong, but Scandinavians would rather not have the stress of how do I afford education for my children? How do I take care of my family's health care? There's no stress involved You don't think about that. It creates a lot of freedom. Mm -hmm. We don't have to think about and plan. When you choose a career that will give you a very high salary, it's because you want to have that lifestyle. You you maybe want to achieve more material things, but if you don't, then you don't have to worry about those things. Oh, so you have the option to go high-powered and make more money to have a boat or something extravagant. Which is actually about to have a boat. There's one private-owned boat per third family in Sweden. So that's another thing. I mean, it's a middle-class, almost a middle-class thing thing to own your own boat. But if you choose a a job because you believe in it, you're Mm -hmm. not going to suffer. Your family is not going to hurt because of that. Exactly. You don't, you're Uh not jeopardizing neither your health nor your your family. Or your old age security. Exactly. Or your your children's education. So you have a lot of freedom to choose your path in life and it won't Mm -hmm. affect those basic uh, securities. Wow. That is a big difference. So, so people save money and they they use money on things that they want to use them on, on, on traveling. We travel a lot. The Swedes travel a lot. Or having that summer house, which we're obsessed about. Is that a liberal or a conservative point of no. view in your country? Or that's just the way people see things? That's the way people see things. It's a private choice. Because Whether was... you want to go for to earn a lot of money, you can yeah. do that. Mm-hmm. Probably not as much as in the United States. But, I mean, there are people that go for that. For sure as well. So they, they sell a little bit of their soul or their balance in their life to make more money and, and have more stuff. Yeah. And it's an option that, you have. Yeah. But I like that, that if you want to be less materialistic, you have that option. Mm-hmm. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Ossa Danielson and Laurel James, both guides from Sweden, about Scandinavian values. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Susan's on the phone from Omaha in Nebraska. Susan, thanks for your call. Oh, hello. Thank you for taking my call. You were talking about Denmark and Sweden, and we're going to Copenhagen and 
Stockholm in the summer, and I keep hearing such mixed things about Copenhagen's better, uh, Stockholm's better. You know, don't go to Copenhagen. Don't go to Stockholm. Go to one or the other. Of course, we're going to both sign up for ourselves. But one thing I have heard is that the Danes tend to be a little more casual and relaxed than possibly the Swedes. Do you have any comments on that? Osa, what sure. is the thinking? Danes and Swedes. Mm-hmm. Ooh. Uh, I, I am half Dane and half Swede, so you can't insult me. <laughs> okay, well, first of all, I have to say you did the right thing. Go to both, definitely. They're pretty different, Stockholm mm-hmm. and Copenhagen, in a number of ways. But what about the Danes and the Swedes? What are the differences? Well, Danes are more relaxed. I actually usually talk about Swedes and Danes and Norwegians as siblings in a family. So brothers and sisters uh, share a lot of similar values, share a similar history, but uh, are different, distinct personalities. So the Dane is a much more relaxed, uh, fun-loving character, likes his beer, got a tattoo, likes to joke, and doesn't really mind so much how to put things out. He's not so afraid of, of being uh, controversial or so. The Swede, big sister Sweden, she is uh, very concerned about that everybody should be treated equal, everything should be fair. She is uh, more political correct. Sweden and Denmark can get on our nerves a little bit. Uh, <laughs> we like to tease each other as well. I can imagine. Yeah. I'm, I'm picturing uh, this in terms of siblings in a family. Okay. And the Norwegian. Is the youngest brother a little bit uh, dependent before first of brother Denmark yeah. and then sister Sweden, but finally became independent and won the lottery, that oil. That won the found. lottery. Yes. That's right. But still the younger brother, because yeah, I, I remember when the, Olympics, when the Olympics were in Lillehammer and, and Oslo, yeah. people were all nervous about, are they going to get ready in time? And, yeah. and they think, when is Sweden going to come in and, and, yeah. and bail them out? <laughs> Things were traditional a little bit later okay. in, in Norway, but now they're caught up. So, so things are changing. So Laurel, that's from Osa, whose family is Swedish <laughs> for a long, long time. You're an American who's adopted Sweden and you live there now. Does that make sense to you, observing this Definitely. Scandinavian family? Definitely. When you go to Copenhagen, I mean, it's just... It's like a jazz festival all, all the time. All relaxed, yeah. yeah. And the smoking and drinking on the sidewalk, and you yeah. would never see that in Stockholm. And, so it's more proper, yeah, so. more careful, as Elsa said, more politically correct. Yes. All right. Susan had the question about the different cities. I've always felt very strongly that the three Scandinavian capitals, uh, Oslo, Stockholm, and Copenhagen, are so distinct. Yes. They're so easy to get to. And if you get as far as Copenhagen, somehow find four or five more days and have a couple of days in each of the other cities. Uh, I I guess if you had to be really unbiased, I would say the greatest sightseeing is in Copenhagen, the history and so on. That would be my take. But I love Stockholm and I love Oslo. And uh, I'm sure Osa is going, Copenhagen, what do you mean? (laughs) But uh, there's so much to see in all the capitals. I would say that Stockholm is a very beautiful, beautiful city. It's 14 islands and it's water everywhere. It's bridges. It's It's green. It's one of those cities with a bike program that really works for tourists. I I just have a bike when I'm in Stockholm and it's wonderful to bike around the town. It's very pretty, very livable, very... Mm -hmm. And people are friendly. Actually, when we say that, people always say that, oh, you're so friendly. People are so friendly and so easy to get contact with the locals because everybody speaks English and they like speaking English. So... 
That is actually for all of Scandinavia, I would when say. When I go to my relatives in Norway at a party, mm-hmm. they just say, we're speaking English. And yeah. everybody goes, well, I don't care. Okay, it's English. Yeah. Rick's here. You yeah. know, and it's, I, I would have felt a little bit like I'm putting people in, in making a problem. But no, it's effortless. Hey, Susan, thanks for your call. Thank you very much. Take care. Our guides to Sweden on Travel with Rick Steves are Ossa Danielson from Stockholm and Laurel James, who lives in Uppsala. And Donna's calling from Duluth in Minnesota. Donna, thanks for your call. Thank you for taking my call. This will be my fifth trip to Sweden next summer, and I'm taking my daughter, who's never been. We are both fiber artists. We uh, weave and spin and that sort of thing. I'm interested in what would be the best time of the summer to go when um, we would be able to go to the Hemschloid or the handicraft uh, spots. And we'll be traveling from Stockholm over to uh, Karlstad in Värmland. So fiber artist, Osa? So handicraft is um, vibrant in the center of Sweden, I would say. Actually, it's all over, but... Dalarna, the the hmm. area of Dalarna is usually it's usually called the essence of Sweden, hmm. and that's where they have the folk art, and that's where they do, they have the Dala horse and all of that. So that is, and also Värmland that you mentioned, that that central area has a very great traditions. I wouldn't say that there's any particular time of the year. Um, obviously, there are displays before Christmas. The Christmas markets display a lot of handicraft. Hmm. And then there are local fairs that you would have to actually check out each town by itself. And in Småland, around Växjö, you have uh, the famous glassworks? Exactly. Uh, glass Country, which has yeah. a lot of glasswork on display. And you can, you can visit the hytta and you can see how the glass is made. And it's a very old tradition. So it's, But it's for tradi- traditional crafts, the key word is dollarna then? I would say so, that, uh, that area. All right. Donna, good luck on that. Well, thank you. Thanks for your call. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Ossa Danielson and Laurel James from Sweden. And we're talking about traveling there and also a few budget tips. We've been talking earlier about how it is for locals who live there, for tourists who come in, it is expensive compared to farther south. I know for a lot of Scandinavians, uh, we talked about the alcohol is expensive, and they'll typically have a drink at home first and then go out and just have one drink in a bar. Exactly. So the key is, I would say, the famous words, be a temporary local. So if you are in Scandinavia, if you behave like a Scandinavian, it will not be so expensive. A Scandinavian would never go out for a bar round and just go cocktail for, from bar to bar like no. that. That would be very expensive. Yeah. Uh, you would have pre-parties at home mm-hmm. before you warm up a little bit and yeah. then you go out. And then after parties, especially young people, of course. But that's how you do. You do a lot of home parties, preparation, yeah. preparing for going out. That way you save a lot yeah. of money. And it's actually fun because um, what we do is, like the other night we had a party and I told the three couples that were coming, everybody bring a cocktail. Ah. So Because you don't drink cocktails a lot there because... They're really expensive. If you go out, it's 20 mm. or $25. Right. So I had each person bring, you know, and make this own, like, really fun kind of cocktail. And that was awesome. So we got to try three different kinds. And, okay. So that's yeah. a, just a smart way to entertain in Scandinavia mm-hmm. is do it at home. Yeah. And then in I remember in Norway, the, the one-time barbecue. Yeah. What is that called? It's a, There's a word for it. The 
En, engångsgrill. Engångsgrill. One-time grill. Yes. And it's a disposable barbecue grill. You, you buy your uh-huh. shrimp and you buy your disposable grill and take it to the park. Yeah, we do that at the park in yeah. Uppsala, too. Yeah. And, and walking mm-hmm. through the park, you have this wonderful smell of barbecues going on, and mm-hmm. everybody's out having a picnic on yeah. a summer evening. And the summer evenings go until midnight, you know. So. Yes. Yeah. So there's a, a way to go like the locals. Mm-hmm. Now, when we're sightseeing in Scandinavia, the museums are they yeah, generally they're subsidized? They're subsidized. So, yeah. so and you can a lot of them are free. Yeah, in Stockholm, there's a long list of great museums that are free now, like mm-hmm. the Museum of History, Museum Army, Museum. Lots of them are for free, so completely free. free. And yes. uh, in places where they're not free, you have passes that give you a free run of the city. Yes, that can be paying for themselves in two or three admissions. Mm-hmm. And one thing great about Scandinavia, if the traveler is a little bit uh, proactive they can ask one of the docents there to actually take them on a tour around and, and they'll describe things. Yeah, there's a lot of free walking tours also. Yeah. So, and when I go to the big city, I Google free things to do in Stockholm or something. And So yeah. free things to do in a highly taxed corner of Europe may be a bonanza for somebody because there is that government revenue to make the museums free. Absolutely. And also to move around using local transport. That's how we do it. We We either bike or we use local transport. We don't use taxis. No, Absolutely you don't need not. to. We don't, I mean, I do it once a year or twice a year. The local transport system works perfect. It's on the minute you know when you're going to arrive to a place. And if there's delay, that is uh, something happened along the way and you're going to get 15 minutes late in Stockholm, you are allowed to hop into a taxi and send in the receipt and they will refund you. That's how sure they are that you're going to arrive on time. Oh my and goodness. this is a system that works with subway, <laughs> uh, buses, boats, and trains, and they're all interconnected. So that's how we move around, and that's mm-hmm. super cheap. So now when it comes to sleeping for a traveler, Airbnb, is that popular? Or what's the Absolutely. way to get around the cost of a hotel? But hostels. Hostels. Hostels in Scandinavia, mm-hmm. they are not youth hostels. Right. They are hostels where, for example, Swedes from the countryside come into yeah, Stockholm. They I've stay stayed in, in them. Yeah. Yeah, you well, have I love done the hostels it. in yeah. Scandinavia. And, and you really save good. a lot of money. Yeah. And there's just no schlocky way to do things yeah. in Scandinavia. So they're quite comfortable. And uh-huh. they can cost $30 or something at, at night in the middle. Do you, you know. save money if you provide your own sheets? Yes. So yeah. I've always thought if you bring your sheets, because you pay a lot for the laundry, yeah. bring your own sheet, it'll cut your accommodations cost dramatically. Mm-hmm. That's another thing. We don't have laundromats, so you got to be washing what? in the sink. Washing in the sink, That's or the... in Germany before you go north. Yeah. And what about food? <laughs> um, Sweden's well-known for its daily lunch specials. Yes. What, Dagensrat, is that the Doggins, word? yes, Doggins. So Doggins. you can, for a surprisingly reasonable amount of money, you get good meat and potatoes and at lunchtime. And a hot lunch, lunch. yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And it includes salad buffet usually, and a drink, and bread, and coffee. So that's usually between, you know, 10 to $20. Yeah. And I, I find it actually cheaper back home than here because we don't tip. We do not tip okay, on so lunches. That, price, it includes tax that includes and it the includes taxes. It's never mm-hmm. extra taxes on the prices. You know what you're going to pay and you don't have to think about tips unless you're going for dinner. Dinner, when somebody is serving you personally, then you tip up to, yeah, 10%. You can this do. is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking budget travel in Scandinavia. And thanks so much, Laurel James and Osa Danielson, for giving us some good tips. Thank Thank you're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton, Isaac Kaplan-Wolner, and Kazmara Hall. Thanks to Digital One in Portland and the BBC in London for studio help this week. 
You too can join us as a caller on the show. To find out who Rick is talking to next, go to ricksteves.com radio. We'll see you again next week with more travel with Rick Steves. Each year, Rick Steves Tour Guides take thousands of free-spirited travelers on escorted tours through Europe, one small group at a time. Next year, you can choose from more than 40 different vacations in Europe's best destinations, from Ireland to Greece and practically everywhere in between. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.